Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Nadine Turman. Tonight on Fast, we're tracking the after-hours action shares of Uber. That stock turning lower as the earnings call got underway. We'll tell you what is being said about this quarter. Plus, a vaccine smackdown. The COVID vaccine makers taking a big hit as the White House says it supports waiving patent protections. We'll dive into the fallout. And later... Peloton plunges, the stock dropping 14.5% today as the company recalls all of its treadmills. Peloton reports earnings tomorrow morning. We've got your setup. But first, we start with a big breakout in big energy. Check out the XLE Energy ETF rallying more than 3% today. It is now up more than 6.5% over the past month. Tom Lee was on our show last night pounding the table on the sector. I think the entire energy complex is a buy. Just OIH, for instance, could almost triple up 250% and a move to oil that is really in line with the Goldman target of $80 oil. So I think energy is, is really one of the best risk rewards right now. And it is the ultimate reopening trade. Do you bet big on oil here, Tim? I do. I have uh, and I will continue to. I, I mentioned last night after Tom's comments. So my basket would be Schlumberger, EOG and Chevron. So first on Schlumberger, who just reported uh, two weeks ago, roughly uh, said that they're seeing their international business begin to inflect higher. Uh, that means also pricing. The fact that these guys are, are continuing to uh, you know, balance kind of innovation and technology in the sector. The last time Brent closed above 68 bucks pre-COVID. Schlumberger was a $39, $40 stock. So um, uh, the conditions are, are significantly better uh, in the outlook for their core business now before they were in February of 2020. EOG, which is maybe one of the best kind of long-term uh, balanced upstream plays, just announced, and this is something people need to watch for a lot of the oil companies. They actually have a 360-something million dollar derivatives loss hedging Brent exposure and on an expectation that prices weren't going to be here. And I think this is an, an industry issue others will also bring forward. And I think on the short term, it, it, it pushes back on an earnings profile and free cash flow at this current level of Brent. But overall, I think one of the highest quality names in the space and Chevron to me has proven to be the best integrated operator over the last few years and a, and a name that I remain long. Yeah, uh, Tom was specifically singling out OIH, which, of course, is different from a lot of the big integrators, Nadine. How, how would you look at the energy sector, yep. particularly if we do see oil go to 80, as, as is embedded in Tom's forecast? Well, I agree with Tim. You know, we've been long-term energy players. I think some of my fast picks were BP and Schneer. Uh, although right now for the XLC, it's about a 4% implied vol premium. Given the run-up, um, we're trimming a bit here. So it's not to say you, on an intermediate term, you can't make some money. Uh, we've preferred the European players because you kind of got two discounts. You had the energy discount and you also had the European discount. But a lot of those valuations came uh, to where we were looking for. You know, BP crushed it a few weeks ago. Total was great. Equinor, Shell. And so when we see gifts like this today, we trim it a little bit. 
What happens when you unlock the door that's been locked for a year, Karen, and you let everybody out and everybody wants to jump on a plane or jump in a car? I mean, if you believe the narratives, right, that the airlines are telling us in terms of the snapback and demand for travel, albeit mostly leisure at this point, maybe slow to come business travel. If you believe the narratives that the car companies are telling us in terms of chip shortages and the extreme demand for autos, don't you also have to believe the energy story or are they not necessarily connected? Well, I'm not sure they're necessarily connected. I don't have very much energy exposure, which has clearly been the wrong thing to, uh, the wrong way to be positioned. But kudos to, I know that um, Guy and Tim have, and sounds like Nadine as well. Good. I have not. For me, it was sort of another level of complexity where you have, all right, the supply-demand dynamic of, you know, of the pandemic and the recession or whatever, the monster recession. And then you had this OPEC, Saudi Arabia element to it that, so you had a very sort of, at times, seemingly illogical actor. So that sort of turned me off of the space, but I did want to have reopening exposure, which to me was much more retail, something like, you know, a live nation, which I think of as the ultimate retail, I mean, the ultimate reopening trade. So they'd be correlated to energy, but, but uh, I mean, it's been a great trade. Also, I just love when we say Tom Lee pounding the table. He's got that, you know, that gentle voice, and he's like, yeah, I think it could be up 400%. And, you know, Tom's, Tom's had a pretty good run of it. So yeah. um, it's a good call. Um, but I sadly have really been underexposed. I mean, for him, monotone is emphatic. I mean, that means emphatic for Tom. And he was emphatic in that call, despite his, uh, his being monotone. Dan, where do you stand on oil at this point of the trade? It's really interesting. You know, he mentioned the OIH. So you guys are talking yeah. about the oil services company. About 40% of that is Schlumberger, Halliburton, um, and Baker Hughes. And, and you know, those stocks are still, um, as a group, they're still off 80-some percent off of their 2014 highs. And I go back to 2014 because it's really interesting. You know, at that time, the Fed was contemplating um, – coming off of or coming out of QE, right, and coming off of ZERP, zero interest rate policies. Well, we're kind of in the same spot right here. You know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of worries about inflation because you've seen all of these industrial commodities move the way they have. And the Fed keeps saying it's transitory. But at some point, the Fed is going to have to do something, right? They're going to have to raise rate um, if inflation keeps going. And what happened in 2014, we started to see commodities really start to sell off. The dollar started to rack oil got cut in half. I think oil went from 110 to actually more so down to like mm -hmm. 30 bucks or something like that. So I think it's kind of a situation where be careful what you wish for here. The higher that commodity prices go up, the greater inflation expectations are, the more likely the Fed is going to have to start um, taking their foot off the pedal a little bit. And if the dollar were to start to rally, what's going to happen to oil here? But I do agree that the OIH is very compressed. It looks like it could be a bit of a coiled spring down here. So that could be the trade. And who am I to argue with Tom Lee. <laughs> Do you have to believe, Tim, that, that it's going to be a Goldilocks scenario for oil and for the belief in inflation in terms of the Fed stepping in and putting its, its foot on the brake, so to speak? Or are we just at a different point in terms of the energy companies? They've sold off a lot of other assets during this downturn. I mean, they have much different balance sheets from 2014. Very different, and, and that's the point. Um, the companies are run differently. They're run for free cash flow. They're not run for for uh, you know for for equity. Excuse me, for debt investors. They're run for equity investors. And in fact, a lot of management teams. Um, 
are, are no longer in place that, that ran the business uh, in a different way. So uh, I do think that you have a case where, again, back to Schlumberger, I mean, the free cash flow dynamics here are, are really what should get you excited. This company is is very different company. It's got a much different structure. It's got a different focus on innovation and, and, and technology, uh, and it's not growth at all costs. And there's not a company out there that can be focused on growth at all costs. So, yes, a painful, painful right-sizing uh, in terms of capacity, a lack of investment in CapEx, probably less OpEx than, than there should be. That ultimately sets the stage probably for supply uh, you know, dynamics that are in favor of these companies as well. But most importantly, the companies are run differently than they were back in 2014, even though Dan brings up great points as to that was a difficult time and they were heading into a very painful time. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the energy breakout. Joining us now is Fast Money friend Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Paul, I know you were watching last night. You are watching Tom Lee's call. You had a thumbs up in front of your TV screen when Tom was on. So you agree with this. But what is the best way, in your view, to play this sort of super cycle in energy? Well, I, I loved what you were saying about uh, your, your discussion up to now has been great and I appreciate it. And I love what you were saying about Tom Lee uh, understating his bull case. It's, uh, it's very powerful when people say it so calmly and quietly. Uh, we like the EMP stocks, actually, of all the stuff that you've been talking about. The one that Tim uh, references in terms of better management, better strategy, better assets, better balance sheets is most applicable to the EMP sector. And we've seen, for example, uh, Devon, one of our favorites today, have a big move uh, as they deliver results, and as they deliver the right message today. Paul, it's Karen. Thanks for being on, and uh, you were good, good call Enjoying when it didn't look like Thank you. it wasn't an easy call. Um, so I wonder, can you tell me if you're as bullish as you are on the sector going forward? Do you play the still levered names that would have more bang for the buck, or do you go for sort of higher quality, better balance sheets that even if there's a downturn, they'd be able to survive that better? Well, that's a great question, and the way we've played it is cash return. What we're saying is, look, there's no trust here. It's going to take time to build trust in owning oil and oil EMP companies after what you've put us through over the past 20 years. What we want is uh, companies like Devon that announced a special today. And pay me now, and I'll ask questions later. Now, for the braver, obviously, the more bullish and levered scenario is to buy some very heavily indebted companies. A, a big example is obviously Oxy, because the pace of debt pay down that we're seeing is so rapid. So as you guys have referenced, uh, and I would add a point, by the way, that what happened in 2014 was very heavily related to Saudi's strategy, which is totally different at this time. Saudi's exerting a lot of discipline on the market, whereas in 2014, uh, they got into a market share situation that was very negative for the market. That's the big difference, in my view, between 2014 and now. Uh, but in terms of the levered names, what we've seen is some staggering debt pay down in the past quarter or two quarters. And the point here is that this industry basically breaks even at $55 a barrel, maybe 50 uh, across the board. And so the difference between $55 a barrel, Brent, 50 WTI, say, and what you're seeing on your screens right now, which is really 70 Brent, is all free cash flow. And so what we've really been surprised by across the board, I think, is how strong the oil price is. When it comes down to it, it's about the oil price. But then we're applying this better strategy, and that's making the sector, which, as Tommy says, is under-owned, uh, look like it's going to have a really powerful seasonal run. Normally, we're going to get a seasonal run here into driving season anyway. It's a pretty powerful combination of effects that we're looking at. So you can buy them all, basically. Hey, Paul, 
Paul, it's, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. So we're, we're largely been talking about a bottom up story in companies that are better run. But you just started to talk a little bit about the top down, which for at many moments in history, uh, the oil and the energy trade for the bottom ups has been a top down trade. What is your call on OPEC uh, on the resolve with an OPEC OPEC plus that relationship, the relationship with the U.S.? Will this hold together? Because the confidence uh, in compliance has been a lot to do with oil prices holding here before the demand actually pulls the market higher. Yeah, and what we've had here is total leadership from Saudi. They're very much enjoying being a central bank of oil. They're the only central bank globally that's tightening, not loosening. And what they've seen is, is a really dramatic win in terms of having to produce less oil but actually have higher revenues. So everything's really going great. This past couple of weeks, we had an OPEC meeting that actually ended before it started. Now, that's the extent to which they had made a decision before the official meeting even started. So at the moment, the OPEC situation looks very powerful. And as you know, there's going to be a very strong demand story here this summer, led by the U.S. We've got a situation here where Iran is probably exporting a million barrels a day, Libya's exporting, and India's not consuming. So you can get to a pretty powerful bull story here for oil to the point where you start worrying about going too far uh, to the upside, especially at this time of year when we're heading into summer coming out of COVID. It's, it's pretty powerful right here. Paul, uh, before you go, I, I do want to check in on some of the bold pairs trades you announced on this show. Um, we got to do it. August 25th, 2020, you said to sell Apple by Exxon. That has worked out pretty nicely. Apple's up 2% versus Exxon's gain of 44% since then. Um, January 20th, 2021, you said sell Tesla by EOG. Tesla's down 20%. EOG is up 28%. So what's your latest pairs trade, Paul? I think about a month ago, I came on and said, buy refining. I'm, I said I was uncertain, but buy refining. So let's throw that one in there. And then I keep saying I'm going to retire. This is just too good to be true. Um, the one that we, we talked about maybe was the famous, the Toto. We, we, we're very pro the energy transition. We're very pro electric cars. We want all this to happen. It's for the better of all of us. But the Toto valuation is like the internet bubble. All of this stuff is wildly overvalued. And most of it's not going to deliver in the internet bubble, what you saw was a couple of stocks, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, were great stocks to buy then, even at the top. But the vast majority of them were a horrible story. And many of the ones that worked, the Facebooks, the Googles, etc., didn't exist in the, in the bubble. And that's really what we're looking at today, a very, very overvalued uh, situation with an excessively low uh, cost of capital. And the best grab bag of all of that is ARKK. I think it's a short. And on the other side, I think you're long the XLE or the XOP. So we're going to short ARC and we're going to go long uh, XOP, EMP. And we've got that on a, let's call it a three-month time frame. All right. Uh, Melissa, thanks for, thanks for retweeting me, by the way. I must also mention my Twitter friends. You must join our Kenny Lay's roll call on Friday night at 8 p.m., the Twitter rager. That sounds kind of dangerous. I'll think about it, Paul. <laughs> thanks for the invitation, Paul Sanky. Thanks, Thank guys. you, research. Um, just quickly, Nadine, would you put that pair straight on? I would not. I just think <laughs> that you've seen tech pretty soft. Uh, energy, obviously, it's been rallying for a while. We've been owners here, but we're trimming a little bit now. Doesn't mean in, in the intermediate term you can't make money on that pair trade, but not after a few down days in tech. That's not the day you put that trade on. So I'd be pretty careful when I put it on and then take it off pretty fast. All right. <laughs> 
Well, we've got an earnings alert on Uber. The stock is sitting uh, right now at after-hour session lows. The company's conference call is underway. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with the details. Depot. Melissa, shares, they turn negative on guidance. CFO Nelson Chai said on the earnings call that Uber's mobility take rate is expected to decline around 20 percent in Q2 due to more driver incentives. He also said, quote, delivery gross bookings year over year comparisons will become tougher as we continue to face significant forecasting uncertainty. And that's really been the big worry for investors that just as rides recover, delivery will soften as the economy reopens and people dine out again. And we did not see that effect in the first quarter, but the company here warning that we could start to see that later this year. On the supply imbalance, CEO Dara Khosra Shahi said that rebuilding the driver base remains one of their top priorities. We'll continue to lean in with targeted incentives for new and existing drivers to build up significant supply, which will enable us to achieve maximum velocity as the recovery plays out. Now, remember, too, that Uber has already earmarked $250 million for driver stimulus, as it calls it. Uh, Now, there was also just a question on the call on the Biden administration's approach to gig worker status. Similar to what we heard from Lyft, Uber says that this isn't surprising. They say they're optimistic that they can have a dialogue to find some kind of middle ground. But of course, Melissa, that is just one regulatory battle. And analysts asked about the changing environment in places like Spain and Switzerland. Uber didn't give us much, simply said that they are engaging. But a reminder that the cost picture here is not super clear. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you, Deidre Bosa. Be sure to tune into Squawk Box tomorrow for first on CNBC interview with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. In the meantime, let's trade it. Dan, what do you mean? It's like it's like snap back to reality. All the concerns that investors had pre-pandemic, they are back and with a vengeance when it comes to this business model. So, Mel, it's really too bad that Guy is not on the show tonight because you just used a Marshall Mathers uh, lyric. That's what he likes to call the M&M there. Snap back to reality. There you go. Well, here's the deal. I mean, this stock, you know, gap from 35 to 50 bucks on the week that we got the news about vaccines back in November 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, that, that, that little period post-election. And what has it done since then? Well, it started trading higher. It was making a series of higher highs here. People are getting excited about that deliveries business and then their kind of guidance that they gave earlier in the year about their path to profitability. But with the stock below 50 right now, Mel, it's trading right where it was after those vaccine announcements. And I think that, you know, we're seeing investors be a little more picky about money losing companies and the valuations they're willing to pay. This company is expected to do close to $16 billion in sales, but net income loss of about $2.8 billion on a gap basis, $1.5 billion um, adjusted. So maybe we're just at a point here where the market is not far from all-time highs. We're pricing in the other side of the pandemic, clearly here in the U.S. And then we're going to think about what do these comparisons look like and what does that snapback look like from that rides to to, uh, Uber Eats back to rides as the focus here. They're still losing a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, before the concern was always how little money they were taking from each ride, they're making off of each ride. And here with the driver shortage, it sounds like they could be making even less or that that would also be pressured. So, Tim, how do you how do you view a company like Uber, especially versus a Lyft where you don't have the sort of the potential drag from the delivery side of the business? 
Well, look, I like Uber over Lyft, uh, and I, I'm sure I said this last night. So, uh, you know, the fact that these this conservative guide talking about the uncertainty of the consumer recovery, I mean, none of this is a surprise. Um, I, I will say when a company talks about being adjusted EBITDA positive in the second half, adjusted EBITDA almost means nothing to me. Um, I mean, I, I want to hear about truly being EBITDA positive and profitability. Adjusted EBITDA to me is something I, you know, I'm used to hearing about in emerging markets and cannabis and places where companies struggle for profitability. So I don't love that. Um, I, I, Dan's right on the chart, too. This is not a great chart after breaking out. In fact, it's, it's downward sloping here uh, a hair. And I think, you know, let's, let's wait and see how this trades. But I love the investments they're making into transportation as a service. I love the fact that they, I, I think, have built uh, a significant amount of investment and moat into some of the logistics in ERP, more so than anybody else uh, in the space. And I think ultimately that will pay off. So I think in the longer term, there's no question this is the one I want to own. All right. Coming up, GM cruising higher after posting a record quarter for earnings. We'll break down what it means for the rest of the automakers. And speaking of earnings, shares of PayPal and Fastly both on the move after posting their latest quarterly results. We'll give you the numbers. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We've got a news alert in the crypto world. Mercado Libre buying $7.8 million of Bitcoin in the first quarter. That's according to an 8K filing with the SEC. It is now the latest public company to put some of its some uh, Bitcoin onto its balance sheet. Um, this has broader implications. Of course, it joins Tesla. It joins MicroStrategy. Tim, is this meaningful for a name like Mercado Libre? Well, when you consider the business they are in and, you know, they, they are an Amazon of Latin America of sorts and, and clearly online e-commerce. And to the extent that they're, you know, they can make the claim that they want to give their 
their customers a chance to actually transact in, in, in Bitcoin and in digital currencies, I think, is, is important. I, I, you know, how much of it's speculation? I don't know. I mean, if you look at you know, their numbers overall, they actually announced a small loss, but their year-over-year adoption was up uh, you know, 120-something percent. It's, it's a, to me, again, they are one of the great e-commerce stories. It is a high-growth company. Uh, this announcement, like I, I, I've kind of shrugged a little bit at these announcements from every other company. I'm not going to get terribly excited about this one. Um, I think the company, however, has had an incredible run, is very well positioned in Latin America in e-commerce. So I like that. Yeah. By the way, James McDonald, fast money trader, um, fast pitched this one not not he too sure long did. ago. Um, <laughs> according to the disclosure, it is in the indefinite lived intangible assets column uh, of the balance sheet. And this is part of their treasury strategy for the quarter. Uh, Karen, just quickly, what, what are your thoughts on how they're treating it accounting wise? Well, I, I'm guessing they actually don't have a choice, so that's why they treat mm-hmm. it that way. But it looks to me like the move in the market cap after hours on this news is far greater than the holdings themselves of Bitcoin, <laughs> which, you know, whatever. I, I like, I, you know, similar to Tim, I think people are a little too excited about it. I don't know that one can extrapolate that it needs to be re-rated now that they own $8 million, $7.8 million of Bitcoin. Right. I don't really buy that, to All be right, honest. We'll, we'll keep following this one. It may be great for other reasons. <laughs> Shares of GM, General Motors, topping the tape after crushing earnings estimates. The car driver, car maker, I should say, also giving a bullish outlook, saying it expects to hit the top end of its 2021 profit range despite the global chip shortage. Morgan Stanley auto analyst Adam Jonas reiterating GM as a top pick today, saying the best has yet to come. Nadine the best yet to come? I mean, Mary Barra has done a great job. GM had phenomenal numbers. We still look for a few things. So what's coming? What's not known? Uh, we like plays that might have two layers of discounts. So again, we look a little bit more to Europe and into Asia. Europe in particular, I've talked about uh, Renault, Porsche, VW. Um, really like it because they're you know, licensing their technology to others. So you get kind of a double discount on the geography and the, the strong type of companies. But overall, you looked at the U.K. numbers today, huge in terms of auto sales. And I think you're going to continue to see that throughout the year. So I think you can pick the good companies and hold on to these. Karen, what was this crab walking thing that got you all excited mid-conference call? What? What? Yeah, that? I just Seriously. thought you guys should know that the Hummer can crab walk, which, you know, I don't know in daily <laughs> use that that is necessary. But it's like, you know, that's a kind of cool thing that just kind of they're thinking somewhat out of the box. But uh, I, you know, really liked what they had to say today. I thought there were a few things that really stood out to me. One is about how they're going to run their inventory from now on. They talked about, you know, lots being depleted of cars. And um, they used to run with a lot more inventory, but they're never going back to that. And that's great. That's great for free cash flow. They'll have so much less uh, tied up in inventory. They talked about software services, that being a bigger part of their business. That's really interesting. This was related to uh, auto drive features. And that's really great. I think that they were they did a better job and got a little lucky as well managing the semiconductor issue because they didn't have as much exposure to um, Renesis as uh, Ford did. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they, it definitely still weighs on them, no question. But I think they're being conservative. And they also had a great GM financial quarter as well. But I do think they're really being conservative. The valuation here at 11 times earnings isn't great, uh, isn't very expensive. 
I like it if I own none. I, I wouldn't buy it today. I would wait, you know, a day or two. But I like it. I think that I think the best is yet to come. All right. Coming up, the COVID vaccine makers taking a big leg lower as the White House says it backs waiving patent protection. We'll break down the fallout and later Peloton plunging as the company pulls its treadmills from the market. The company's gearing up for earnings tomorrow after the bell. We've got your setup when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Vaccine makers taking a hit in the last hour of trading after the Biden administration said it supports waiving patent protections for COVID vaccines. That would effectively hand over the secret recipe for these life-saving vaccines to other manufacturers, possibly in other countries, to make them. Shares of Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax all dropping sharply from their highs of the day. The news grabbed the attention of a former Allergan CEO, Brent Saunders. He tweeted in response, who will make the next vaccine the next time? Brent Saunders is now the chairman and CEO of Vesper Healthcare, joins us now on the Fast Line. Brent, always great to get your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me, Melissa. Do you think that's the way the industry will read this? You're ripping away our intellectual property, basically, whenever you want to. And what's the incentive to have it in the first place? Well, well, I mean, I was being rhetorical on, on Twitter, but, but I do think it's a slippery slope. And, and the more we erode our intellectual property protections in the United States, the more we, we decline as a knowledge-based economy. And so it, it, when you're talking about investing billions of dollars to try to solve unmet medical need or cure disease, why would you want to rob companies of the intellectual property protections that, that come with that investment? And, and this is not about getting poor countries vaccines. This is about political theater. So what political theater is this in, in terms of the Biden administration just winning the favor of the other countries of the WHO? I mean, it may be, I mean, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you might, you might think that they're doing this because they know that ultimately even granting, even waiving patent protection, it, it won't actually manufacture more vaccines because there are other problems like, you know, there, there are no factories necessarily equipped to manufacture the vaccines. There is a global limit to the materials needed to make these vaccines. There are all sorts of other limitations. So is that part of the, the theater that, that you're talking about? It is. Look, I mean, I think waiving intellectual property rights isn't about, it doesn't, you know, you don't snap your finger and have a plant that can produce mRNA uh, vaccines. Um, you know, as you said, there is not an artificial supply constraint today. It, it, it's about high-quality manufacturing to, to GMP standards. It's about the raw material supply. It's about fill and finish in a sterile environment. There, there's a lot of technically complex things here that, that aren't going to be solved just by waiving intellectual property. I think if the U.S. government wanted to, to assist in, in providing these vaccines to poorer countries, they should have helped invest in manufacturing here in the United States, created jobs here in the United States, and we could have supplied those those vaccines either at, at cost or non-for-profit or for free. 
Right, it's Karen. I appreciate your thoughts. Let me just ask you something. So Moderna was supported by the government in their effort, and Pfizer wasn't, yet they would both seem to be hurt by this. Is there any fix that you can think of that would work politically, but still allow them to, um, certainly at least Pfizer anyway, to benefit? Well, I, I think it's, I think Pfizer, I mean, look, I, don't, I haven't spoken to, to either CEO, but I think most in this industry, in the biopharmaceutical industry, want to do the right thing and, and want to help people um, in poor countries get the vaccine. They want to help all people get the vaccine. I think the reality is this is not the way to do that. If the U.S. government wanted to do that, if the Biden administration wanted to do that, there are more practical ways that would actually lead to people getting shots in the arm. And that's really by supporting uh, uh, manufacturing capacity and supply constraints, not by waiving intellectual property, which is the lifeblood of innovation in, in the biopharmaceutical industry. So to me, this feels like a, a quick win and, and potentially long-term damage, not actually solving the problem. You know, Brent, uh, Big Pharma gained a lot of points during the pandemic in terms of stepping up and, and researching and, and miraculously finding several, you know, different vaccines to, to help this problem. Um, does it risk losing that political capital if it says, hey, this is not fair? Well, I think what's interesting is is I'm, I have a good source that both Pharma and Bio were trying to work with the administration to provide these these vaccines to poorer nations at cost. Um, and many are already doing this at, at cost or at, at, uh, as a non-for-profit activity for the poor countries. So, you know, I think I think there there's lots of different ways to come at this, but eroding intellectual property or forcibly taking this after these companies have done amazing work to bring this technology to, to the world is is a real shot in the arm, <laughs> not to, to use that pun. But if you if you really step back and and think about what they're doing here is is they're really weakening the intellectual property system of of our country um and they're setting a precedent that i think is the beginning of a very slippery slope uh, particularly in a con an economy that wants to be a knowledge-based economy right. i mean intellectual property rights are so important and so there's there's dozens of other ways to to help the poor nations get the vaccines this is frankly in my humble opinion not one that will actually you know, cause anyone to get a vaccine, but but to only hurt our country and its intellectual property protections. Right. And so it, it seems like it's just a misguided uh, approach to, to trying to solve this when there's so many other ways to do it. And remember, you know, mm. six months ago, there were, what, 30 different vaccines in development? How right. many actually made it? It's a very high-risk business, right? We only have two, well, now three approved in the United States, right? And, right. and there were 30 you know, trying. And, and so that just shows you how risky this this endeavor is and, and why intellectual property has to be part of the foundation. And, and plus, once you give away this technology, it's gone forever. And it's right. not just for vaccines. It's it's for everything else this technology can be applied for. Sure. And so I, I think just, you know, handing it over to the rest of the world is, again, a very slippery slope for our country. Brent, thanks so much for your insight. We appreciate it. Brent Saunders. Um, Thank you. I think that's a very good point. And when it comes to intellectual property, it's a slippery slope, not just for pharma, but also potentially for other industries, develop other products and in, in other times of need. Um, those products might be needed under other circumstances. 
Um, Tim, it's interesting because Moderna had had the greatest fall. I mean, it has the most exposure because as the least diversified, quote unquote, yeah. business. Um, but also it's reliant on that mRNA platform for the other vaccines that it has in its pipeline. Right. Well, you, you, you brought up the issue about playing the stocks here because, you know, it, you're buying this weakness in Pfizer um, for sure, because, you know, ultimately uh, you know, mega cap or big pharma, you know, even J&J and Pfizer, this was not really a boom to their share prices. Yes, I know Pfizer's had a pretty good run. Um, and I know we've also been talking about the, the hit to uh, big pharma over the last couple of weeks and Merck and some of the other companies. But but really, Moderna is the one uh, that rightfully, you know, showed this was a breakthrough moment for this company from a tech technology perspective and again a platform right to build upon with this technology uh, and everything about the you know the evolution from here and booster shots so uh, for investors this is something that that at least short term is I don't think the weakness you go by um, even though I, I couldn't agree more with Brent and the sentiment here and there's plenty of ways where as a country we can be leaders in the world and we can be helping countries that need our help without giving away our competitive advantages but our technology that's been earned here so uh, I it, it's an emotional issue I actually I think he was, uh, you know, he, he was very conservative in his criticism. I, I think this is something that would be a disaster. I mean, it seems like it's a slap in the face to these companies that devoted so much in terms of resources, both human resources as well as just, you know, money to develop these vaccines, which is basically enabling us to reopen the economy um, in the United States as well as around the world, Karen. A real slap in the face here. And the implications are just, I mean, they're deep in terms of taking away intellectual property. They are deep, and I think his suggestion of having them deliver them at cost or mm -hmm. even less than cost really makes so much more sense than we don't even know if it'll work if you give them the technology and say, okay, you have this crisis right now. Go manufacture vaccines right away. That doesn't really make sense to me, but, um, and I think we, need, we do need to protect that. I do think that, that you know, the Pfizer's and the Moderna's, they're trying to do the right thing, J&J &J also. But we can do both. We can give it to other countries at cost. Yeah. All good or points. Or free even. Yep. Coming up, we're keeping an eye on shares of PayPal and Fastly. Both stocks on the move on the back of earnings. We'll tell you how to trade the results. Stay with us. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. PayPal and Fastly both on the move after reporting results. We've got full team coverage of both these names. Frank Collins standing by and Fastly, but we kick it off with Kate Rooney for a breakdown of PayPal's quarter. Kate. Hey, Melissa, that shift to digital payments boosting PayPal this quarter with a beat on the top and bottom line. PayPal says this was its best three months in its history as a public company. PayPal is upping Full-year guidance on net new actives, total payment volume, revenue, and earnings. Stock's up about 4% here after hours. I did speak to CEO Dan Schulman just before the call started. He says it's not just online shopping that they're seeing. He expects that move to digital to happen even in person as we all go back to normal and the economy reopens with things like QR codes and mobile pay. Schulman also telling analysts on the call that a shift in consumer digital behavior, he says that will, quote, remain essentially unchanged in a post-COVID world. He also talked about strength in its buy now, pay later product. That's the big Affirm competitor and the topic on everyone's mind, crypto. They didn't put out any specific numbers for Bitcoin trading, but Shulman did talk about central bank issued digital currencies. He says that they are having, quote, positive conversations 
with regulators on that topic. PayPal CEO also says he expects the company to top 400 million users by the end of this year. Melissa, back to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. Nadine, what's your take on the quarter? Well, it was a great quarter. They had 21% active account growth and total payment volumes of $285 billion. The expectation was about 265 Coming into the print, we were looking at 6 to 1 upside. The stock had an implied volatility premium of about 24%, so we like those types of odds. And my colleague's on the call, so um, I haven't gotten a full update. But what we were looking for is the update on crypto, central bank digital currencies, the monetization of some of their products, Venmo, what's going on there, as well as emerging markets. But they're doing the Asian fintech playbook. We love it. They're going to be cross-selling financial services. So this is one you can own for a while. All right, let's get to uh, Fastly now. Frank Hollins on that. Frank, what's the latest? Hey there, Melissa. Uh, shares down. Fastly falling fast after a missile revenue, a profit loss only a penny more than estimates. Some people may also be selling on the news. The cloud computing company CFO is stepping down after five years. He will stay on until a replacement is found. Also, a bit of mixed guidance. Q2 between 84 and 87 million, well below estimates. Full-year guidance actually raised by $5 million on the top and the bottom end of the range, kind of in the middle of estimates, and really mixed results too. Revenue, that increased by 35%. The average enterprise customer spend up sequentially. However, net retention rate, what customers are paying in the last month of the quarter, that was down sequentially. CEO Josh Bixby also adding his views on work from home, saying in part, we are observing that many of the trends that emerged last year appear to have become permanent even as the world begins to reopen. So clearly a lot to digest here, including Fastly still being up 170% from its pandemic low. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you. Um, it's always peculiar when a company takes down its uh, current quarter guidance but raises the full year guidance. The CFO stepping down, Dan, is never a good thing either. What do you make of this quarter? <laughs> Well, I think these two stories are really interesting next to each other because PayPal is clearly a scenario where you've seen a massive acceleration of behavior that's never going away. And I think with Fastly, what you saw was a massive pull forward in a very short period of time. And now you're dealing with the decelerating growth. You're dealing with kind of some murky sort of guidance, um, you know, and it's still coming into this day. It was trading at 17 times sales, you know, so there was never going to be able to grow into that valuation. So I, I just... Listen, you know, we've been talking about a lot of these names. I think Zoom, you saw Peloton today, we're going to talk a little bit about. I think a lot of these pandemic winners, so to speak, are one bad headline away from this sort of like cratering action because a lot of people have been hanging on and these stocks have not been going anywhere. They've been massively underperforming the market over the last, let's say, three to six months or so. A lot of these are down 30, 40, 50 percent from their um, highs in, in, in the last year. So to me, I think you really have to be careful with some of these high valuation names who We've seen pull forward and now we're going to be facing um, deceleration. Yeah. Speaking of that bad headline coming up, we're going to talk about that bad headline that has sent Peloton shares down 14 percent, more than 14 percent today as the company is pulling its treadmills from the market. We'll break down the full fallout when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Peloton plunging after the company announced voluntary recalls of all of its treadmills following multiple reports of injuries and one death. Peloton CEO John Foley apologizing for not cooperating with the Consumer Product Safety Commission sooner. 
Peloton dropping 14.5% today. This seems to be a major reversal from the company, Karen. And I think what is uh, even more interesting is that there are actually two separate recalls. The tread plus is for that issue of pulling things underneath it. The recall of the tread is because those touch screens have been known to either disconnect or completely fall off the treadmill. So there are a couple of manufacturing issues that need to be resolved here. Yeah, it's a, that, I mean, this is sort of a big deal. Obviously, the stock was down a lot. There's so many things going on. There is, you know, the, the reputation of the company. I think the CEO did the right thing late, but late is better than never, for sure. It is a huge distraction. It is a huge use of resources, of, of manpower, people power, uh, money, which they fortunately have a balance sheet where that's not a problem. But, um, I mean, I don't own the stock. I've found it to be expensive. This isn't cheap enough to make me think that, all right, I want to jump in right here. These things tend to get a little bit worse, I think, before they get better. But I do think the company is doing the right thing and that they ultimately can get past this. At the same time, though, you do have the, the reopen trade and are we going to see Peloton's growth slow dramatically because of the reopen trade? That I don't know. We have earnings tomorrow, but those are going to be less relevant now. It's more about how, how is this going to affect the company right. going forward and the reopen trade. So I, I don't own it. I mean, that conference call is going to be critical for Peloton investors um, tomorrow. Let's get to, to Tony Zhang. He's got the options action on Peloton. Tony. Yeah, Melissa, big day here for Peloton. That news of the Tread Plus recall wiped out more than $4 billion in market cap just today. So it's not surprising that options traded fairly actively, almost half a million contracts traded, uh, which is almost seven times the average uh, option contracts traded. So we saw a pretty interesting trade here that we don't see very often, which is a put condor. About 740 contracts of the June 70, 80, 90, 100 put condor traded for a $3.30 credit. This is an interesting trade from the perspective that this trader is betting almost half a million dollars that Peloton will be either below 70 or above 100 by the June expiration, making about a quarter million dollars in profit if that is true, but risking half a million dollars, double that, if Peloton stays between the middle two strikes, between $80 and $90. So really betting a big move here on earnings tomorrow. Interesting. Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang for more Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we got your final trades. Your breaking news, let's get to Kate Rooney. Kate. Hey, Melissa, we've got some news out from the DOJ about the IRS, essentially looking to seek records for Bitcoin holders. This is a court in California issuing a John Doe summons. That's an, essentially an investigative tool for the IRS to get the identities of certain taxpayers. It's for two companies, Payward and uh, Kraken, which are both San Francisco-based. A quick quote here from the acting assistant attorney general. Gathering the information the summons approved today is an important step to ensure cryptocurrency owners are following the tax laws. Anyone transacting with cryptocurrency must meet their tax obligations. So uh, this also has to do with people transacting with $20,000 or more worth of crypto. So, yeah. All right. Back to you guys. Particularly pertinent in a year where Bitcoin has had its run. Thanks for watching Fast. Post the final trades on Twitter. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.